Alright, let's turn over our notebooks this morning and we're going to review the Wellspring Purpose and the Disciplines. Okay, we're going to start with this every week. The Wellspring Purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they excuse me, live out the Gospel, thus strengthening the church in its Gospel Purpose. Wellspring is about teaching the women in the church to unite around these three spiritual disciplines. We do this so that there's a common understanding when we talk about and when we strive toward becoming a woman after God's heart, becoming a godly woman. And so let's look at that first discipline, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. The woman of God knows that she needs to be bringing her heart before the word of God. Because that's what our hearts need desperately, right? We need to understand that. And I hope that you gained a better understanding of that last week when we began this biblical survey of the heart. And I pray that after today our understanding of that will grow even more that we will see the need of our hearts greater and greater throughout this year. And as we do, this understanding should lead us to be in the Word because we know how much we need it, to be with God, because we understand the condition of our own hearts and we want to bring our hearts near to God because we love Him and because we want our lives to make an impact that they'll just overflow with the gospel. Now let's look at discipline number two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with their heart for God and the gospel. Ministering to those in her household, whatever that might look like for you, is the overflow of her heart because it has been well shepherded. Her life is evidenced by the fact that she has been in the word meeting with God, and her family benefits from it. She's making an impact there with the gospel. It's demonstrated by the way she cares for them, the way she loves them, the way she's patient with them, and the way that she puts their needs before her own. And then the third one is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now, when she steps into the lives of others, she knows how to care for them because she has a better standing of the hearts, of all hearts, hers and theirs. She understands the deceitfulness of our hearts, and therefore the need of our hearts. So because she's been in God's word, because she has met with God, she now has something to share with the women that, that come into her life, because she has just feasted on the word of God. So we see that discipline number three also is an overflow of discipline number one. If we have met with God, 
We're not going to be fearful and shy away when we see a sister in need. But we will joyfully and humbly step into her life. Though we don't have all the answers, we never claim that. But we do know how to point her to God and how to point her to the gospel. We'll see it as a joy and a privilege to be used by God as we are dependent on him. So let's pray, and then we're going to begin um, our lesson this morning. Father, thank you for these reminders that we go over each week of how much we need you, how much we depend on your word. And Father, I pray that these would become a part of our thinking, that throughout our day we would often think and evaluate how we are shepherding our hearts toward you through your word, that it would become a part of who we are. And Father, we are thankful for your word, and I'm thankful that we can be here this morning and we can open it up together, and Father, I pray that as we do, that your spirit would be our teacher, that you would continue to teach us about our own hearts and about others' hearts so that we can better minister to them, but most of all, we'll know better and better how to care for our own hearts so that you will be glorified in our lives. So please, teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, since this week is a continuation from last week, I think we better begin by way of reminder. I know I need reminders, so I'm assuming you do as well. Last week, as we looked at the heart, we saw that it is the focal point of God's evaluation of us because it's where our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, and our deeds are both born and nourished. We saw that the condition of our hearts is devastated and it has failed us. It's beyond our own cleansing. It is the source of our own defilement. It is our foolish hearts that invites greater spiritual darkness. Our hearts are prone to deception. They are deceitful. We saw they are deceitful more than we can possibly know. And remember, that's when they're at their best. And our hearts are deceivers. And we also saw that that heart, knowing all of those things that are true about our hearts, that very heart is called to love God. That's a predicament. And we saw that God knows that predicament. He sees it. In fact, he is the only one that truly sees it as it is. And so we want to continue this morning to see what God's word has to say about our hearts. So we're going to start um, with question number six. Now, as you turn to Deuteronomy 10, I want you to listen because this is really important so that you understand why we're doing it this way. I want you to look at your outline. Okay, and see where it says James 4, 8 on your outline? Okay. 
I want you to take a line and draw a line underneath James 4.8, all across the page. Because we're going to approach this topic of the greatest need of the human heart by asking two questions, first of all. okay? We're going to ask, what is the need and who is responsible for that need? Who's responsible for meeting the greatest need of our heart? Okay, so that's the first perspective. And then we're going to go back, and you'll see the next one is Deuteronomy. We're going to go back and start again in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at it from a different perspective. Okay, it'll make sense once we do it. So I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 10. We're going to look at verses 12 through 16. Moses is talking to Israel here. He says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which which I am commanding you today for your good, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he, cho- and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Moses reminds the people of this beautiful relationship that the creator God of the universe has given to them in himself. He's set his affections on them, and he requires them to love him, to walk with him, to serve him with all of their hearts. And then, look at verse 16. He says something that I think would have been startling to them. He says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. What do their hearts need? Circumcision. And they are commanded to do it themselves. It's their responsibility. Now, go to Jeremiah 4. We're going to look at verses 4 and 14. So it's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Okay, so it's, in case it's been a while since you've been there. Okay, so look at chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 4. Okay, this is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel. And God is still saying the same thing. Verse 4, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Again, it's a command. He's telling them, do it, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God is concerned about the evil of their deeds. And where is he saying this needs to be fixed? At the heart level. He's saying to Israel, there needs to be a radical removal, like circumcision is, 
of all that is wrong with your heart, or else judgment will come. This is a serious need of the heart. Now look at verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem. Why? That you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will you keep being this way, he's asking. It's been a thousand years. Here, he's commanding the very thing that we saw last week in Proverbs 20, verse 9, that we can't do. Wash our hearts. Remember we looked at that? Who can, who can cleanse their hearts? And we saw the answer is no one. And yet God is saying, you do something about your heart. God is identifying the heart's greatest need. It needs a radical removal of all that is wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But... He is placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Now, turn to Ezekiel 18. It's right before Daniel. Are you starting to feel this tension a little bit? As we continue through the Bible, the tension builds. Let's look at verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct. Notice the emphasis on each. Each, according to his conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is. Make yourselves a new heart, and a new spirit. Now, a Jew hearing this would be thinking, God, you want me to make myself a new heart? Who I am at the very core? The part of me that births and nourishes and shapes and launches all of my thoughts, my desires, my deeds? The part of me that you never overlook? You want me to do this? Again, a Jew hearing this would hopefully be asking this question. And the answer is yes. The command is to them. Do this. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Now, this should be making us uncomfortable. Its purpose was to make them uncomfortable. Now we can turn to Joel. It's just three books to the right. Over and over again, God is, is making it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their hearts. The verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. So that was a custom for them when something awful happened. They would rend or they tear their clothes. It was a sign of deep sadness 
or grief. And God is saying, you need to do that with your heart. He's saying, return to me with deep sadness for what you have made of yourselves. Tear your heart at the very heart level of who you are. Show sadness and grief and brokenness. Now, just so we understand that this is also a New Testament command at a certain level for the Christian, I want you to turn to James 4 and look at verse 8. We'll see that even in the New Covenant, the command is the same. Verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we see the greatest need of our heart is to be cleansed. It's to be purified, to be circumcised, to be torn by grief, to be made new. And we are responsible to do it. Ladies, it is our responsibility. Okay, now, to look at question number six from a different perspective, having seen that our greatest need of our heart is that it be cleansed and that we are responsible to do that. Now we're going to look at what God says he will do. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the hope. Okay, I want you to go back now. We're going to go through again. We start in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 1, but I want us to look especially at verse 6. Verse 1 says, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And then he continues on and he gives them wonderful promises of restoration. Now, jump down to verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The old covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. From the earliest of days, the old covenant made Israel long for the day when God would do something about their hearts. From the giving of the law, when God was setting up his covenant through Moses, they were to long from that day for a heart that would do everything that God had commanded. So it's interesting. The Old Covenant actually highlighted the need for a new heart without doing anything to provide for it. 
Now let's keep going. Turn to Psalm 51. This is David under the Old Covenant, and he felt that tension. He knew God's evaluation of his own heart. And he knew God's promise of a new heart, and he cries out to God to do that. Now this is after his sin with Bathsheba. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you hear how deeply he felt that tension? He knew that it was beyond him. And so he's crying out to his Redeemer and Creator to do in his heart what must happen, and yet what he was incapable of doing. He's crying out to God at a heart level. Now, turn to Jeremiah 31. Now, we're going back through a lot of the books that we just looked at, and we're seeing that God is so gracious. In the very places where he's making the need of the heart known, and he is laying the responsibility to meet that need, again, squarely on the shoulders of his people. He's right there at the same time. He is giving them hope. He's promising them that he will provide for the most desperate need of their hearts. Look at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the promise of the new covenant. And it will be at the heart level to do with the heart what the old covenant could not do. Now turn to Ezekiel 11. Are you starting to see how rich the Old Testament is with the te- regarding the teaching of the heart? Ezekiel 19, like Jeremiah 31, is looking forward to the new covenant. Look at verse 19. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. This is a corporate expression of what God is going to do for them collectively. He will give a new heart to his people. Now, look at Ezekiel 36. Look at verses 26 and 27. God is so kind. He is so gracious. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both written at a time when God was judging his people, 
sending them into exile. And yet, over and over again, he speaks these words of hope to them. Look at verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Don't you love that? When God gives his people a new heart, his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. Now, turn to Luke 22. Let's go to the fulfillment of that promise. Here we find Jesus the night before his crucifixion. He's eating the Passover feast with his disciples. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You can see the cross is on his mind. Look at verse 16. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the cup of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. See, he's making it clear that his death is imminent. Look at verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is taking the Passover supper and transforming it into what has become for us a remembrance of his death and the new covenant that he has established in his blood. Jesus is telling him that the new covenant that was promised is here. He is going to die to inaugurate it. Now let's turn to Acts 2. This is after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. The new covenant has been inaugurated. And the Holy Spirit came on his disciples. And they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking the great things of God. And, And people of many languages on the earth were gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. And they could hear them all speaking these great things in their own languages. And they want an explanation. And so Peter gets up and he gives his first sermon. And this is what he says at the conclusion of it. Look at verse 36. Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
God thought this way about Jesus. He is Lord. He's Messiah. And you, those of you who are listening to Peter, you crucified your Messiah. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord your God will call to himself. Peter says, Repent, be baptized. The promise is for you and your children and for all whom God will call. The new covenant in Jesus' blood has been inaugurated at this point and the Holy Spirit of promise has been poured out on all who are present. And what happens at the heart level to those who hear Peter? The heart is penetrated at the preaching of of the gospel. The work that God promised is now beginning. Go to Acts 15 and look at verse 6. This is the council of Jerusalem. Gentiles are believing. And this would have been a shock to the Jews. Because what did the Jews think? That God was primarily working with Israel, right? It's even what God said when he talked about the new covenant. He said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But watch what happens. Look in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts. By faith. God is allowing the Gentiles to participate in the promises of the new covenant just as he did the Jews. So we saw that the greatest need of our hearts is to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. And at the same time, simultaneous to that, the way the heart changes is that we admit our own inability and we trust in God's promises that he will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Therein lies the mystery of the sovereignty of God. Now, we spent a lot of time on this this morning because this, ladies, is central to understanding the gospel. 
If we don't understand the desperate need of our hearts because of sin and the need for our hearts to be cleansed, we will never fully see our responsibility or appreciate the promise that God made that he would cleanse our hearts. So let's go on to question number seven. Let's see what God says. When we ask the question, what is God's provision of our heart? So turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And let's look at verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, they would have been forced to really think about this. How am I supposed to do that? Verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your what? Heart. God is saying, you can't love me unless my words are on your heart. See, here is what God intended from the very beginning as he forced Israel into this dilemma. He's saying, I want your heart and I want my word to be in full contact with one another. God's provision for our heart is his word. Okay, we can't miss that. God's provision for our hearts is his word. I want you to look at Ezra chapter 7. See, Ezra knew this. He was a scribe long after Israel was sent into captivity And now God is allowing them to return into the land that he gave them. Ezra understood the connection between the heart and God's word. Let's look at verse 10. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. See, this is what we're talking about when we talk about discipline number one. Ezra knew it. So what did he do? He set his heart. Who set it? Ezra did. He set his heart before God's word to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach its statutes and ordinances. He knew his heart needed to be in contact with God's word. Do we? I hope, I pray that we are beginning to get this. Okay, we're going to skip over Psalm 19, and I want you to go to Psalm 119. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. 
Well, see, the psalmist understands this relationship between the heart and God's word. The first nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. This is so key, ladies. This is what it's all about. Our hearts need God. It's always been that way. It was this way under the old covenant for believers. The heart needs God. Notice what he says next. He's not just talking about some spiritual experience. Okay, he says, do not let me wander from your commandments. Why? Because my heart needs you. And you are revealed to me in your commandments. Look at verse 11. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. There it is. There is full contact with the heart and the word of God. Ezra got it, and the psalmist got it. Now, think back to Jeremiah 31, 33. What did God say he was going to do under the new covenant? We already saw this. We already read it. He said, I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. Okay, where is he going to put his law? On their heart. So God's command is, get this word near your heart. And then he says, he's the one who's going to do it. Okay, in the old, in the, excuse me, in the new covenant, God is the one who brings that ultimate impact that only the word of God can have on our hearts. The new covenant brings the heart and his word into a new relationship unlike anything that was seen before. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at Jesus. I want you to turn to Luke 8. Now, I know there's a lot to take in, but hang in there, okay? We're going to pull this all together before we're done. Jesus is telling this foundational parable about the farmer sowing seed on different soils. And then he gives the meaning of this parable. Verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their, what? Their heart. So that they will not believe and be saved. See, the devil doesn't want God's word coming near any person. Look at verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. 
But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. In the three, in three of these soils, the word gets snatched away. Hey, it sprouts up, but it dies. It gets choked out. But in verse 15, we see the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and a good heart and hold on and bear fruit in perseverance. And the question that they should have been jumping to ask is how do I get that good and honest heart? Now we haven't gotten there yet. But you see, Jesus' intent is to show that God's word needs to be in contact with our heart. Let's look at Luke 24. We're going to look at verses 25 through 27. At this point, Jesus has been raised. He's joined up with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's after the crucifixion. And they're discouraged. So they're explaining what's been going on as they're walking with Jesus. And Jesus says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Foolish men and slow of what? Heart. He's saying your heart was too slow to interact with God's word. So what does Jesus explain? The word. And what in particular? The suffering. The answer for my heart is Jesus' suffering. The answer for your heart. It's the gospel. That's what takes away our sin. And it's what gives us a new heart. Now go down to verse 32. So these disciples get to where they're going. Jesus eats with them. And they still haven't recognized him. Until he breaks bread. And then in verse 32. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? What was he speaking? He was explaining the scriptures to us. Their hearts were on fire as he was teaching the word of God to them. Their hearts were burning while the gospel was being proclaimed to them by their Savior. Now, let's keep going. Let's go to Hebrews 4. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. And we'll see why. What is the provision of our hearts in, God, in God's Word? The verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions 
of the heart. This is God's design for his word with us. That it would come near to our hearts and use it like a surgical tool to allow it to (coughs) reveal the thoughts and the intentions that are going on in our hearts. We want the truth of verse 12 to work on us all year long. For the rest of our lives, God's word is the provision for our hearts. That's why the Wellspring, first Wellspring discipline is to prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through his word. God's word is his provision for our hearts. So let's summarize. Let's go all the way back from last week. Our hearts are a dismal failure. They are stained beyond our ability to cleanse them. They make us impure. They are foolish and they want to plunge us into spiritual darkness. They are easily deceived. They are the greatest deceiver. They are completely unaware of their own condition. And yet, the calling of our hearts is so high. We are called to love the Lord our God with our Do you see why the Son of God had to come to suffer, to bear away our hearts in his body on the cross? And do you see why he had to give us a new heart? And now with that new heart, God intends for his word to come near to us. So, what should our attitude, our posture, our stance be toward our hearts? It should be this. Discipline number one. That we would prayerfully shepherd our heart to the word of God. To meet with him. That we would not be lazy in bringing our hearts before God's word as often as we can. To know him and to love our God who sent his son to bear away our hearts that were deserving of judgment. Can you imagine God looking whose heart was only ever pure and what he put there was our hearts yours and mine that heart of deception evil foolish and darkness And he emptied out his cup of wrath on those old hearts 
not a drop left. Amazing. And that's only half the story. He gives us new hearts. We are new creatures in Christ. The promise of the new covenant is that new hearts come. And with those new hearts come new desires. Do you remember when you first got saved? I do. I remember the moment. It's August 30th, 1975. I remember the first time I wanted to please God more than I wanted to please myself. That's an amazing thing. My desires changed. I wanted to live for him. I had an insatiable thirst for his word. Well, I'd never read it before in my life. My sin didn't just make me feel guilty. I hated it enough to want to turn from it. Why? Because he took away my old heart and he gave me a new heart. And with that new heart came new desires. That's what God does in salvation. So with this new heart, our response must be, Lord, as I read your word, come close and judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Expose at the very core of who I am what is going on. We need that kind of exposure. But we also need to feed those new hearts. We need to feed it with Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We need to feed our hearts so that it is functioning rightly, that it is thinking correctly, and acting wisely. If we are not women who do this, if we don't shepherd our hearts with the word of God, we are not going to be exposed to what's wrong at the very core of our heart. And we're not feeding that new heart that God gave us, that he died for. If that's the case, If we're not feasting on God's word, how can we care for our hearts? How can we care for one another's hearts? And how can we care for those in our church? Ladies, we need to get this and to do this. We need to be convinced that we need God's word. So that we know him. Not so that we merely know facts. Not so that we don't feel guilty. And not so that we look better 
than others. Now we come to God's word, as Scott would say, first and most, to meet with God and to know him. So then here's the encouragement. You do that, I do that, and God will use us in amazing ways beyond anything we could have imagined to advance his gospel in our homes, in our church, but most of all, in our own hearts. So we must shepherd our hearts. We must do it prayerfully as we open our Bibles to meet with God. And to re- we must ask him to reveal himself to us to feed that new heart that he's given to us, to give us eyes to see where the residue of our old hearts still lingers. We must be dependent on him. Why? I want you to think about Peter, the life of Peter. Peter was not shepherding his heart well. In fact, he was pretty confident the night before Jesus died. He thought, I've got everything it takes to go the distance with you, Jesus. Remember, what did he say? I'll die with you. He thought his heart was okay. But Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. What did Peter say? Not me. This man was a man who was terribly unaware of his own heart's condition. And he was so distraught by what happened when he did deny Christ that even after he'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, he basically gave up and said, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I was before Jesus called me. Because I'm pretty sure he's not going to be able to use me now. What does Jesus do with disciples like that? He comes, he finds them, and he pulls Peter Peter back up on the beach, and he said to him, Now are you going to start reading the Bible? Is that what he said? He went right to the core of it. What did he say? Do you love me? Because that's where Jesus wanted to come. And he wanted to protect and nurture and fan Peter's love for him into a fire, into a blazing fire. That's our Savior. Ladies, if you find yourself today in a place like Peter was, it's just good news. We have a Savior who loves to come to us, who loves to come after disciples like that. And he does. And he will renew your love for him. But it all starts in one place shepherding our hearts to his words.
to come to the Word of God. Because it's there that we will meet with Him. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand in awe at what you have done for us, that you would send Jesus to die for us, to take away our old hearts and to pour your wrath, not a drop left on them. And you've given us new hearts in its place. Father, I pray that we would be women after your heart who desire to now feed those hearts with your word, to feast on your word so that we know you and so that we will be useful instruments to you. Father, what an amazing gift you have given to us. I pray that we would think on it, that we would ponder daily the amazing grace that you have poured out on us. We thank you in Jesus' name.